welcome to the St Emlyn's Induction Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsell. And I'm Natalie May. And in this podcast, we're going to be thinking about something that I know frightens me, even now on occasion, but definitely worried me when I first started in emergency medicine. And it's probably one of those things that can concern us the most, the child who presents with shortness of breath. As regular readers of the blog will know, Natalie is our residence and Emlyn's paediatric expert, so there's no one better to get her hints and tips on how to look after these children. So Natalie, if it's all right, I can give you just a little case description and maybe you could tell us how you would approach this patient and we can move on from there covering some of the typical causes of shortness of breath in children. So let's imagine it's about winter time, you're in a busy paediatric emergency department and the triage nurse comes through carrying with her a two-year-old child who's short of breath. She's brought them straight through because there's something about the child that she's just a bit worried about. How do you suggest that we approach these children so that we can have a safe and effective way of looking at them? So Ian, that's a great case and exactly the sort of child we would see in the winter time when we tend to get more kids coming into the emergency department with shortness of breath. But the first thing I would say to you is absolutely don't panic. You've got plenty of skills from your adult practice in assessing patients who are short of breath and you can use those in the paediatric emergency department just like you can on the adult side. Take your systematic approach to your short of breath patient and apply it to a child. So I would suggest the first thing that you need to do is have a look at the child's level of consciousness, decide if the child needs some resuscitation and get some help if you're really worried. If things are okay from that point of view, then you can go on to do a structured assessment of the effort that they're putting into breathing. So that's things like whether they're using accessory muscles, whether they've got intercostal and subcostal recession, tracheal tug or head bobbing in small babies. You can look at then the effectiveness and the efficacy of that breathing effort. So if they're getting the air into the chest and when you have a listen, you might hear some extra sounds that are going to give you a clue as to what the pathology is that's driving their problems with breathing. And then how effective that is in in terms of oxygen delivery and gas exchange. So you can look at the child's level of consciousness, their oxygen saturation and effects on other systems. So their heart rate, for example. So you can do that end of the bed assessment. Do you think it's a good idea that any short of breath child tends to get given oxygen as soon as they come in? I think it's unlikely that that's going to cause any big problems. So yeah, that's a great place to start. If you don't know what else to do, stick some oxygen on. You can always stop it afterwards. Oxygen doesn't really cause children a great deal of harm. So yeah, go for that. Like our adult practice in the induction podcast, we've said before, give these children oxygen. What's next? Our decision about how we then go on to treat the child sort of depends on what you find when you're assessing them. You're going to want to take a history from mum or dad about the chronology of events, so how long they've been short of breath for, if they've got any pre-existing lung problems, if there's any other presenting features that are going along with the shortness of breath, like fever, like cough. Don't forget in toddlers that they might have uh, inhaled a foreign body, so if it's a very sudden onset, always remember that that history can be really helpful in deciding about whether the child is going to be someone who's going to respond quickly to some therapy and which therapy you should give them or and whether they're going to be able to go home ultimately Uh, and then it would depend what you found on examination as to where you go from there in terms of treatments that are available to you one of the things that's always struck me with children is that generally if i say that their problem's down to a virus i'm invariably right But I'm guessing that different viruses have different problems and we need to be careful about how we treat those different things. So we should probably think about the different potential causes for this little one, about what could be causing the shortness of breath. Most of them are viruses, aren't they? We couldn't just go through a couple, could we? So bronchiolitis. Bronchiolitis is something that we tend to see in the winter months. 
it's on a continuum really with what we call viral induced wheeze so it is caused by a virus and specifically the respiratory syncytial virus or rsv but you don't really need to know that you just need to know what it looks like usually presents as a child who's under six months working hard with their breathing so lots of recession tracheal tug sometimes with low oxygen sats and when you listen to their chest they're really wheezy that can present in older children as well they can also get the same kind of cold viruses the sort of things that would give us a runny nose Uh, and there may be a family history that someone else in the family's got some sort of snotty nose disease at at the same time and then this child will present with a kind of wheezy illness so we've got to maybe try and differentiate have we between bronchiolitis and then the viral wheezer And these seem to be the children under two. I think I read somewhere that 90% of children under the age of two will have had an episode of bronchiolitis. But obviously not all of them need to come into hospital. How do we decide which of these need to come in? And I guess we also need to work out which are viral wheezers with this undifferentiated cold type thing and which of them have RSV because the treatment could be a bit different, couldn't it? Potentially. um, I think it's it's not maybe not as clear cut and it's it's hard to know who's got RSV. There are some rapid tests you can use in the emergency department and you may or may not have access to those. To be honest, in that first phase, it doesn't make a lot of difference. You're going to give the child oxygen if their SATs are low and you could try them with a bronchodilator, which may or may not help. There's probably no harm in trying that either. So you can give them some inhaled salbutamol through a spacer if their oxygen SATs are okay, or you can give them a nebulizer if their oxygen SATs are low. If it helps, brilliant. If it doesn't, you've not probably not lost anything by giving that trial. And in terms of deciding which of those children are going to come into hospital, that comes down to how well the child is coping with the illness. So we know that diseases like bronchiolitis are typically worst around the five or six day mark. So if you're seeing a child who's very early in the course of the disease and is already working really hard with low oxygen sats, well, they're going to be coming into hospital. In fact, any child with low oxygen sats on air is probably not going to be going home in the next four hours Children who are not feeding well, remember that if they're working harder with their breathing, they're going to have increased calorie expenditure. So they're going to need to be feeding more than usual. But kids don't breathe as well when their stomachs are full. So they quite often go off their feeds. So it's just worth bearing in mind that getting a good history of how much feed they're taking is really important. They also get dehydrated because they have increased insensible losses. When you're breathing out lots, you're losing lots of moisture. And if you're not feeding well, as most of these kind of baby age kids, they get lots of their their water from their feed or from having milk if they're really, really small. If they're not feeding well, they're going to get dehydrated. So if they've got a reduced urine output uh, and they're really working hard with their breathing, that's worth bearing in mind. That's a reason to think about observing them for a period of time. And then there's the kids who we're always a bit more suspicious of. So the ex-prems, the ones who've got chronic lung disease, the ones who've got other respiratory pathology, they can just be knocked off by having a simple viral infection and that can make their work of breathing so much harder. Their kids you're not going to want to send home, they're going to want to keep an eye on those really closely. So we're going to start with some initial therapy, we're going to give them oxygen. I agree entirely, when we're looking at harm versus benefits and we're doing that really throughout the whole of this St Emlyn series, I don't see a huge amount of harm in giving a dose of bronchodilator to these small children. And usually I think it may do them some good. So a bit of bronchodilator. And then that bit about feeding is really important. So if they're not getting enough in, either because they're mouth breathing and they can't actually get their mouths round a bottle in order to take the feed in, or they're just their desire to feed is down, then they're going to need to stay in to have extra supplemental feeding and also have that feeding watched. And I suppose there's ways we can see that 
via their urine output if their nappies aren't as wet as normal that's probably a good surrogate is it that they're not taking enough fluid in absolutely and that's a sign that they're getting heading towards dehydration so there's the there's the not being able to feed because the stomach is full as well if your stomach's full it pushes your diaphragm up and remember kids have got soft chest walls so they're really really dependent on the the role of the diaphragm in order to get a good tidal volume so when they're working really hard with a full stomach pushing the diaphragm up they're just not going to be able to get good breaths in so that's why they tend not to feed as well so all of this is adding up into a picture of the children that we need to take seriously and who need to stay in hospital. We're getting some clues from the effort that they're putting into their breathing. It may be they've got things in their past medical history that are making us more concerned. And I know that even as a consultant emergency physician, I'm going to be more wary about those ex-premie kids or children who've had any sort of history of respiratory problems. One of the things I just want to mention now is one of my favourite medical terms, and that's obligate nasal breather which is one of those things that I've only really learned as a dad, but I just enjoy saying obligate nasal breather. But that is one of those things about these small children, isn't it? If their noses get blocked up, they get a touch confused and don't know quite how to breathe. Yeah, absolutely. And really, really tiny babies who present with bronchiolitis might not have as much respiratory distress as older children, but they can just present with apneas. They just stop breathing because they've got a blocked nose. And that could be faintly terrifying. I'm still not a cause to panic as I'm not a big fan of panicking in the emergency department. But again, a definite reason to get some help from somebody sensible at that point. So we've got these under twos who've come in, maybe like the child we said at the beginning, who's maybe got a bit of wheeze, they're short of breath, they're using extra effort to get the oxygen in to maintain their sats we can make an early decision about who's going to come into hospital probably some of the children we might want to give a trial of therapy what about steroids for these children often parents will come in and say oh yeah little johnny's asthmatic but little johnny's only 18 months old is asthma something that comes along later are these just children with viral wheeze and where do steroids fit in with that Difficult, a difficult grey area. I try not to tell anybody in the emergency department that their child has got asthma if they don't already have an existing diagnosis. We know that viral infections make asthma worse in older children who've been diagnosed with asthma. We know that there probably is some continuum between the viral wheeze and the exacerbations of asthma that we see in the winter. It's all a bit of a grey area. There was a recent paper in Archives of Disease in Childhood that suggested there was no benefit in giving steroids to wheezy children in that preschool age group. And so I tended to stray away from that unless they've got a formal diagnosis of asthma. So kind of leave the steroids to one side. But yes, there is a continuum and it can be really difficult to figure out who's got, who's got what and who's, who you're going to treat in which particular way, which is why the trial of bronchodilator is a helpful thing to do. If it helps the child, brilliant. You kind of know what you're going to treat them with and where you can go from there. And let's be specific about bronchodilator, shall we? We're talking about salbutamol and ipratropium in these little ones. Yeah, I tend to just go for salbutamol first to see if they have a response. If they respond to one, they're going to respond to the other. Our local protocol is to try salbutamol in the first line. And here we're really talking about this moderately unwell child this is not in recess in the child who's trying to expire on you this is the child who's come in with mum not so well for the last few days because that's a probably a slightly different kettle of fish but for these ones we're going to try a bit of salbutamol and then add in ipratropium later but probably hold off the steroids unless they've got a history of being steroid responsive would that be reasonable yeah, absolutely. So older children who have maybe had a couple of viral wheeze episodes might have been to the GP and not been quite as poorly as they are now, but have had steroids in the past and know that that helps. Reasonable to try them with some steroids. But again, a grey area, quite contentious. I certainly don't give steroids to under fives very often at all in the emergency department. 
So that's a couple of viral illnesses we've covered, but there's obviously more. The other one, of course, is the child who comes in with that supposed to be. And actually, it's one of those conditions which actually does present like it says in the textbooks with a seal-like cough. And you can hear them from the end of the ward. And the child comes in with this loud inspiratory noise. And it's the child with croup. How do you approach that child and where do you go about deciding therapy for them and whether or not they need to stay in hospital? Again, croup is something that we tend to see more over the winter months. It's related to a viral infection. So just in those times of year that we're coughing all over each other, that's the time that these kids are going to get croup. And again, they present on a a spectrum as well from the child who's had a a bit of a cough overnight and mum and dad have come and sort of don't really seem to be particularly unwell. They're running around in the waiting room. They're not really doing anything and you sort of think mum and dad might be making it up a bit and then suddenly the child will do this fabulous dog bark like cough and you'll go oh now I know what the problem is all the way through to children who come in in severe respiratory distress with croup the vocal cords become inflamed children are trying to breathe through a smaller hole so that when they get distressed particularly it's harder for the air to travel through that hole so you get these turbulent airflow noises and you hear the strider and you they get a hoarse voice quite often And the more upset they get, the harder they try to breathe because they're upset. So the more turbulent airflow they get. So the first way to approach them is just to stay back as much as possible. Don't distress the child. They tend to be those kind of kids who are at the age where they've got proper stranger anxiety as well. So they're not going to respond well to somebody that they don't know coming anywhere near them. So try to stay back. Try not to upset them. The tendency is to want to give them a nib or give them some oxygen. And that can often make things worse. So just slow and calm and trying to keep things under control is the way forward for these kids so you can get a proper assessment and then you're going to use your structured assessment of their effort of breathing and the efficacy and the effects just like the kids who come in a bit wheezy. And it seems to me as a father that often these illnesses and creep seems to be one it presents at the worst time of day for a parent. It's that time where they've given the child their supper, they've just had the bath, they're about to put the child down to bed And they're about to open up a nice bottle of red and thank themselves that they survived another day looking after a small child. And about 25, 30 minutes later, all of a sudden the child gets short of breath and starts making this horrible noise. And as a parent, I know that it's just, it's the worst when you think you've made it through and then you've got to traipse your way to the hospital to try and get checked out to check your child's not in dire straits. And emotionally, it's a really difficult time to work in the paediatric emergency department, I think. That time, the witching hour between 7pm and 9pm where children really, they should be in bed. And now they're tired and they're ill and their parents are longing for supper and they want a glass of wine. To me, that's the hardest time to work in the emergency department with children. Do you have any tactics to try and help mitigate against some of those things i think we need to be really understanding about that time we know that all illnesses so it tends to be respiratory illnesses but also the diarrhea and vomiting typically vomiting will start in the late evening and particularly croup as well croup is always worse at night time so if it's worth thinking about if you're seeing a child who's presenting with croup in the daytime they're probably going to get worse in the evening so that's going to be a sort of red flag for thinking carefully about sending them home Um, We need to be understanding to parents. It's not easy at all being a parent. It's the hardest job there is. And sometimes they just want to know their child is okay. We need to be sensitive to that, to treat the distress in the child, not necessarily treating the fever. We don't treat numbers in kids, but we can try to take account of the fact that the child's tired, give them some paracetamol if they're a bit grumpy, if they seem with their fever, if they're unwell, and just try to make life a bit more pleasant for everyone concerned. 
So it seems to me with croup though that there is this miraculous therapy that you can turn this grumpy, fed up, short of breath, croupy child into a child gently slumbering in their parents' arms just after a single dose of dexamethasone and that it seems to act remarkably quickly. Is that a reasonable therapy to give to most children who present with croup? Yeah, absolutely. If they're well enough to take medication by mouth, then a single dose of dexamethasone will usually do the trick. There's no particular evidence for high dose dexamethasone, so doses vary between 0.15 and 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. Your department will almost certainly have a protocol that is your choice of dose, so follow that. But there's no benefit for giving the higher dose. It doesn't make it any more likely to work. And yeah, most children need a single dose that just reduces that bit of swelling around the vocal cords and makes things a bit easier. So we we have a local policy whereby we give the dose of dexamethasone, we observe for two hours, and then we can use the, the croup score. There are various scoring systems and we've got a, a local guideline that in, incorporates that and we look for an improvement and then fingers crossed they'll be able to go home. Just with the warning that sometimes, very occasionally, they become worse again the next night. So kids I'm sending home with croup, I always sort of go through with mum and dad have you got a car at home so that if things get worse, you can come back relatively easily? Do you live relatively near the hospital? You're not out in the countryside, sort of half a, half an hour away from anywhere that it's going to be a real problem if you're trying to get back to the hospital in a bit of a hurry. And just give them that sensible safety netting advice. And most of these kids will respond beautifully to a single dose of dexamethasone and go home a totally different, transformed child, which is what we like to see. So we can put that in a little package. You've got these children who are making that characteristic coughing noise. We know that they've been a bit short of breath. And age-wise for croup, sort of anything up to four or five? I think most of the textbooks say up to about six. You will occasionally see children who are a bit older who have recurrent croup, um, and they'll usually tell you that. But they, by the time they get to that older age group of the seven, eight, nine, they are really unusual to see, but they also don't seem to struggle as much as the smaller kids. So we've got the patient there with croup. Again, a viral illness, but making that characteristic inspiratory noise rather than with the other children who are going to be making expiratory noises. We've talked about bronchiolitis and how to differentiate that between that and viral wheeze. Are there any other causes of shortness of breath, Natalie, that you think we should just think about now as we come to the end of this podcast? Children do get bacterial chest infections, so we do sometimes see kids with pneumonias. And the, the clues that are going to make me think along those kind of lines are they tend not to be working as hard with their breathing as children with with a viral illness so actually they don't have quite as much recession they often they almost always have a fever and they often have slightly decreased oxygen saturation so sats around about 92 93 respiratory rates up got a bit of a temperature and just that little bit of recession and that's just usually enough to make me think actually this child might have a low respiratory tract infection it's probably worth getting a chest x-ray on i don't do that many chest x-rays in kids I probably do more nowadays than I used to and I find that that's a conversation that I have quite a lot with the junior doctors about whether we do that or not and that's absolutely fine I think we don't want to give children doses of radiation they don't need so absolutely fine if it crosses your mind that the child might need a chest x-ray to go and have that conversation with a, a senior. And while we're talking about investigations do any of these children need blood tests, cannulas, that sort of business? No generally your very very sick croup might need a cannula if they're really heading that way but you are absolutely not going to go near them with that you if you're thinking that they need a cannula because they're so sick with their croup you want to have some very senior people around you so yeah most of these kids don't need any sort of investigations at all you can treat them purely on their clinical grounds which is kind of nice so as we round things up we've got a general approach to these short of breath children and i think the key thing you were saying was stay calm we can 
think of these children in some ways in the same way we think of adults and Simon Carley would always say that children are after all just you know little adults so we can approach them and assess their work of breathing oxygen is a good thing we're going to give them oxygen generally these are going to be some form of viral illness whether that's a bronchiolitis type picture viral wheeze maybe the croup we've talked about and some of the older children may have got to the stage where they're getting an infective exacerbation or a non-infective exacerbation of their asthma but the approach we can use for all of these is very straightforward. High flow oxygen, giving bronchodilators to those that sound wheezy, and then thinking about giving steroids to those with croup. We probably don't need to give steroids to the ones with viral wheeze. And then making sure that we support them while they get better. So maybe they need supportive therapy with oxygen, and they may need supportive feeding and observe feeding as part of an inpatient program and only a few children will need other investigations like a chest x-ray but those are the children who present similar to the patients that we have who are adults who have a mnemonic type process so fever cough maybe that grunting sound at the end of their respiration and so it's all rather we can make it hopefully a bit more straightforward i guess the only the only thing the only caveat i have is always remember to consider whether there might be an inhaled foreign body it will catch you out if you don't think about it. It almost certainly isn't that because it's pretty rare nowadays. But just keep that in the back of your mind when you're seeing kids who are short of breath, particularly if things aren't making sense otherwise. And of course, this is just the beginning. There's plenty more that we're going to be doing on the St. Emlyn's blog and podcast about shortness of breath in children. Going into more detail about some of the controversies about treatments to do with some of these conditions we've talked about. But for now, we just wanted to give you a general approach so that hopefully on that first shift in the paediatric ED, you just feel a bit more comfortable. And of course, the other thing we'd all reiterate on the St. Emlyn's team is there's always somebody more senior to ask, whether that's a senior emergency physician or one of your paediatric colleagues. Stay cool, stay calm, and I'm sure you're going to look after these patients really, really well. So we look forward to speaking to you again on the St. Emlyn's podcast soon. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.